Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, she is one of the most prolific writers of her generation. Prose, plays, poetry. Welcome Sarah Rule to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is playwright, essayist, poet, and professor Sarah Rule. Sarah has had dozens of plays produced around the globe. Some of those titles include Eurydice, The Clean House, Passion Play, In the Next Room, or The Vibrator Play, Stage Kiss, and many, many more. She has been a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a Tony Award nominee, and the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship. Her books include 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write, Smile, and Love Poems in Quarantine. She wrote the libretto for the opera Eurydice, which was presented at the Metropolitan Opera. And most recently, her play, Becky Nurse of Salem, is having a production at Lincoln Center, and it stars the extraordinary Tony Award winner Deidre O'Connell and is directed by Sarah's very longtime collaborator, Rebecca Tishman. I'm so thrilled to welcome you, Sarah Rule, to the podcast. Hello. Hello. So nice to be here. Uh, it is um, many weeks into the run now. I saw the play really early on. Um, Becky Nurse of Salem is such a fabulous sort of reimagining in a way of a story we think we know um, with all of the things that make a Sarah Rule play so uniquely gratifying for an audience member so there are is that a puppy yep let me let her out <laughs> all dogs are welcome on little known facts what is your dog's name it says minerva minerva we've had so many special guest stars of animals on this podcast i feel like that could be its own <laughs> <laughs> artists and their pets. Here's my first question before we get into the glorious play that I got to see recently. I can only imagine how many ideas you have a day about things that might make for an interesting play or book or essay or opera, all the things that you do, a poem. So how does this become an actual realized theatrical event rather than another idea in a notebook that you're like hmm might that be like why this play what made you stick with it and how does Sarah rule what happens to her that makes her realize ah this is something more than a, a jotted note on a napkin mm. I think when I start a play I try to let the ideas percolate for at least a year actually so that I'm not outlining, I'm not writing, but 
I'm seeing if the idea takes root and takes hold and if it has staying power, even in, in my own imagination, because, you know, from start to finish, getting a play to fruition can be two years, three years, four years <laughs> with the pandemic. This is sort of five years um, for Becky Nurse of Salem. So you want to have an idea that feels big enough and like capacious enough, I guess, that you can sit in it for that length of time. So if I have a smaller idea that I jot down on a napkin, maybe it becomes an essay or, you know, a poem I can write very quickly. But for a play, I want to sit with it for a longer time before putting pen to paper. And is there just something internal? Um, like, is there at this point, you've been doing this a long time with great success. You're one of like the five people on the planet who get to keep doing this and just this um, as a career. Is there something now that you recognize in your body that happens when you're like, oh no, this is this is not just, when you say a year, what happens during that year? Do you keep coming back to it? Because you do so many things at the same time. You're not writing one thing. I think it's just, does it remain? Does it keep bothering me? Is it still an itch that I want to scratch? And then to really start a play, I love to go away. So I started Becky Nurse of Salem at Hedgebrook, which is a women's writing retreat um, off the coast of Seattle. And I think, you know, you have little kids, right? Um, I have three kids and at the time they were littler. And it's very hard for me to start the beginning of an imaginative world at home um, with three kids underfoot. I can write an essay or a poem quickly, no problem between the hours of nine to three, right. but at least starting a world, I think it's helpful for me to go away and, and get space. Do you have rituals? Are you superstitious? Do you need certain things on your desk, whether it's at home or, or at a writer's retreat? I'm definitely superstitious. I like the same kind of tea. I, I drink Yorkshire gold tea which I love to have. Um, I have a little pink Ganesh that my friend Tina Howe gave me at my first uh, preview in New York. And I like to bring that not so much for writing. I like to bring it with me to production to kind of gather my courage when an audience comes. <laughs> I get it. So <laughs> speaking of, you know, ritual or superstitions, that definitely is part of the story of this play, Becky Nurse of Salem. And so can you explain a little bit what the germ of the play idea was and sort of what it is now that it's a fully realized, gorgeous production? Well, thank you. Well, the germ, there were two germs that sort of became one germ and it was 2016 and the, the Trump um, election was happening and at his rallies, they were screaming, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. And it just reminded me of the Salem witch trials, um, that kind of frenzy of, of group mind wanting to put a woman to death or jail her. Um, and then meanwhile, I saw an Eva Von Hove production of The Crucible that made me see the play in a new way. And I think I'd always seen the play as mainly a metaphor about McCarthyism, but I saw the play differently, maybe because the girls were sort of sexualized um, in that production, but I really thought, oh, Miller does sort of blame the whole Salem witch trial 
on the lust of one young girl, Abigail, who's in love with John Proctor. And I thought that's really odd. And so as I investigated, it became clear that that was entirely fictional, even though a lot of his play is based in historical fact. So I wanted to write some kind of answer to that or to be in dialogue with that. So in a way, I, I feel like I was trying to pull through the past in Salem into contemporary Salem, Massachusetts. And I felt like Miller covered tragedy well. So I, I felt like comedy was <laughs> what was left to me to discover. And um, and because the opioid crisis is such a big deal in Massachusetts right now, I felt I had to include that. And, um, and it also reminds me too of the tragedy of an epidemic spreading in the same way that, you know, paranoia about witchcraft was an epidemic that was spreading. So all those, all those ingredients kind of made its way, made their way into the stew. For folks who aren't able to see this production right now, although I'm sure it will have many productions regionally and around the world, the centerpiece of Sarah's play and sort of how she kind of frames it or lets us into this world is a descendant of uh of the one of the original you know sort of victims of the Salem witch trial is now a museum uh host for for classes that come and visit you know basically the Salem witch trial museum also you have at the center of it someone who has been doing such incredible New York theater hmm. for so long and and film and television but really is like one of our most beloved theater actresses who recently with Dana H sort of became really understood by the masses sort of her incredible unique gifts so I don't know she's called Dee Dee she's Deidre O'Connell on a on a program but her name is Dee Dee to people who know her who are lucky enough to know and work with her is Dee Dee someone you'd work with before and how did this collaboration come to be? You know, I hadn't worked with Dee Dee before. We've known each other sort of around town and have a lot of dear mutual friends and collaborators like Les Waters. Um, and I've always loved watching her work, but it's the first time we've we've been lucky enough to work together. And she's so she is such a creature of the theater. She's so theatrical. And and one thing that I love about Dee Dee is, you know, sometimes in rehearsal, she'll just be speaking a line and I'll think she's just speaking you know she has this incredible reality but also she can do bizarre surreal theatrical things so she can she can tack back and forth really quickly between oh I'm just sitting here talking to you and um oh I'm like collecting my um my vagina juice for a potion and I'm looking at the guy in the front row and <laughs> chewing it that will only make sense for people who see it or get their hands on a copy of the play when it's published. So we don't even need to say anything more. Just get a copy of the play if you don't get to see it. And you will know why Sarah Rule just said vagina juice. Um, there's also a really incredible musical. I mean, the design of the play is really special, but there's also a really incredible musical element to it. Can you talk about the great fortune you had of who you collaborated with and how that happened? Yeah, it was really kismet. So Suzy Roach did the music, and I don't know if people know her music from um, her collaborations with her sisters, and um, and she's really been in this folk scene for a long time, and she's also done collaborations with the Wooster Group. Anyway, just an incredible artist. And originally, we were thinking there's a statue in the play 
of Rebecca Nurse. And at one point, Rebecca Tashman, the director, was thinking, oh, well, should we maybe we should have an actor to embody the statue. And then you're surprised when the statue comes to life. And she's like, the only person I could imagine doing that is Suzy Roach. And so she called Suzy and asked if she was interested. And Suzy said, well, I don't think you, I don't think the play needs that, but I could write music. And then very quickly, she wrote this beautiful song that's in the play. And we were just lucky to have her in rehearsal and um, seeing her process, making interstitial music. She's really incredible. First of all, it's so funny that you say that I wear glasses. So it's certainly possible because of my vision that that my mind played tricks on me. But that statue is so incredibly lifelike that I thought, oh, this is like when you go to New Orleans and there's someone standing like a statue yeah. for a really long period of time. And you're like freaked out because suddenly they move and you scream because you can't believe yeah. it isn't made of wood. And I had the opposite <laughs> experience yeah. where I kept expecting that statue. I thought, wow, that person is really good at freezing for a really yeah. long time. So yeah. that is remarkable. It is. And it's really testament to the props department at Lincoln Center. Um, was that the hope that it would not trick people, but that it is possible that people would think it was a human standing there when they that walked was in? the hope. And we didn't think it would be that successful, but like people are literally taking bets about whether it was a statue or a person. <laughs> well, it's so funny to start of an experience um, of seeing a piece of work where within minutes, you are your reality shifts what you think you are seeing so quickly and it's such an incredible way to enter a play right mm -hmm. where already something magic is happening before you even have any idea what the experiences of the play is about right I mean it's just a really interesting way to begin something um and then when you have Dee O'Connell follow that you're like oh this is I'm going to settle in. This is about to be a really fantastic night in the theater. Um, you have had, I think, I would call it a great thing as a woman to more often than not collaborate with mostly women um, mm -hmm. in a rehearsal room. And this play is very, you know, the director is a woman, your composer is a woman, your star is a woman. Mm -hmm. um, I know when Dominic did Passion Play with you, I'm married to an actor who yeah. has, has had the great fortune of doing a few of Sarah's plays. Um, you know, Mark Wynn-Davy was the director. So it's yeah. not that always uh, Rebecca is your, your collaborator, but a lot. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about what that feels like? Mm -hmm. Well, it's just wonderful to have long-term collaborations with directors over time and with all artists over time because you kind of develop a loose sense of company. And I just think we don't have enough theater companies in New York anymore. I'm from Chicago, which is much more of a theater company kind of town. And I just feel like when you have a sense of company, you can extend an aesthetic, you can be judged not just for one-off products, but for your kind of life as a, as a theater company. And so I try to work with the same people over and over again to to give myself that sense of safety um, and that sense of reach. And with Rebecca in particular, I mean, I think it was important that a woman direct this play and she's got a great sense of humor. She's also a real romantic. 
Um, and she, I think she has a beautiful visual sense. So it was really great to, it was my first play back since the pandemic. So it was really great to be in a room with her since I've known her for such a long time. There's a line in your play and because this podcast will live long past this specific production, I do need to say it because it it kind of slayed me, but there's a moment in the play where someone says, and I and I may misrepresent it, you wrote it, you can correct me. When you're in a play, you're never lonely. Mm. Yeah, it's um what's the exact line? She says, maybe plays are corny but the truth is no one is ever lonely when they're in a play and it's funny I wrote it before the pandemic but you know after the pandemic I made sure it repeated in the epilogue because it was so important to me you know this idea that plays are occasions to come together and we've been in solitude for such a long time as an industry it's been so painful to be separated from each other yeah it I mean it gutted me there was something about the simplicity of it I think anyone whether you know they did a play in third grade or have devoted their professional lives to creating art with Mm -hmm. a company whatever that meant to anyone at any time in that theater I thought that is so kind of the center that Mm -hmm. holds all of it and it was Joe it was so surprising because it's not a play about theater Right. I mean, it's not that's not what the play is about. And yet it is a play about theater. Well, it is. And in the sense, too, that it's about the crucible. And and so it is it is a meditation on theater in its way. And, you know, the plays that I've worked on with 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 your wonderful husband are also sort of love notes to the theater in a sense. So Stage Kiss, you know, is about two actors who um fall fall back in love through the course of doing a play together and passion play is about a meditation on sort of casting a passion play (laughs) so I do I do come back to that I think often you know why is it a play and what is unique about that form why is it not a film why is it not something else because because I do feel you could probably be lonely on a film set um I've never really been on a film set but I think the collective of of doing a play puts you in the present tense with a group of people in a really extraordinary way well that's why there are these unique directors right like Altman did it Mike Lee does it Uh film directors who work toward building ensemble in the way that you're describing the world of theater is is such a unique experience Mm -hmm. and as you know like what happens during rehearsal that's where you know no one's off in their trailer while other people are working you know everyone's always in the room together um you know I read something recently I think maybe it was in the New Yorker article that you that just came out which is just such a beautiful piece about you and your work and how much it means to us in the community to have someone like you um, talked about, you know, there's this idea now like, oh, theater is back and and we go see the play and really not understanding the ways and layers in which the COVID pandemic still affects everything about making theater um, from protocols to, to 
even with protocols, people not feeling well, people not being able to show up. Has this production, because it is a, it's not a huge cast, but there's a, a bunch of people in your play, all of whom are fabulous. Um, were things stalled at different points during rehearsal and production because of COVID still? They were. And, you know, Dee Dee, I don't think she, I don't think she'd mind my saying she got COVID during the rehearsal process and she got really sick and she was out 10 days and it was scary. And um, when she got back, she had to build strength back. And, and it's so strange to have a rehearsal process halted in the middle. You know, the first week was all joy and all bravery. And then we were just kind of in limbo for 10 days and then came back. So Lincoln Center is, is um, has the resources to cancel 10 performances to get the time back. Right. But, not all theaters could. So that was extraordinary. Um, and then when we came back, it's like the costume designer got COVID, the assistant director got COVID, crew was getting COVID. And right. I think also people don't understand that crew, um, a lot of crew folks left the, the business during COVID. And so there often aren't even enough trained crew for theaters to hire. So there's a shortage of crew. There's um, you know, resources being directed towards COVID managers because we need to test all the time and that costs a lot of money. Right. So it's a lot. I mean, I think our theater's staggering through coming back and some theaters are really teetering on the edge. And I think no one wants to bother the audience with that information. You know, we want to be like, we're show people, we're fine, but it's, it's pretty precarious. And, and sometimes I feel like there could be more critical generosity in the community um, because I think critics might not understand how precarious things still are. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, I mentioned in your in your bio read that you're also a professor. Are you still an active teacher at Yale? Yes, I just had a wonderful last tutorial of the semester this morning on Zoom. Uh, so yeah, I've been there about 10 years and I usually teach one class per semester. And this this semester it was tutorial, so it was really individualized. Yeah. So who was the teacher for you? Because you have an ability to literally write it, like in every lane that exists for writing, you have been able to like drive down that lane, like so successfully with such a, a singular voice in each of those genres of writing, if that's the right word to use. How, who was the teacher in your life or the person who was like, look, you are great at all this shit, <laughs> <laughs> but this is the one, or did or did it just come organically for you? But was there someone who was like, hey, you're really uniquely gifted at playwriting? It was Paula Vogel. It always goes back to Paula Vogel for me. And I started as a poet. And I think that's really what I planned to do was write poetry and maybe teach. And I met Paula um, my junior year at Brown where she was teaching them. And she kind of tapped me on the head and said, uh here we go and i and i think paula has a a unique ability to fortify young writers with courage the courage of their convictions um because there's so much rejection in in the writing life in general and theater in particular i don't know if i would have had the ego strength 
to go on with it if I hadn't met Paul. I know I wouldn't have actually. Um, even sending my my little poems out as a 22 year old, I would be devastated if I got right. you know, 20 re rejections in a row. So I think we all need mentorship um, to kind of get us through that early period of intense rejection. Is there something when you hearken back, you know, to kind of early days and and the sort of fortification of holding on to yourself in, in yeah. you know, you just mentioned critics. It's still, you know, we're human. So it's still, yeah, we're human. yeah. Was there something specific that she said that like, if you were a needlepoint person, you would put it on a pillow or that you can recall and share with my listeners? Well, I'll tell you a recent story. You know, the, the New York times was hard on Becky nurse of Salem and Paula called me the next morning, which is always so nice when a friend calls the next morning and she said, you are resilient. And she said, you are, you have always been resilient, uh, but you never resist your own voice. She said, so you, you show resistance in other ways, don't resist your voice. And I would, I would needlepoint that on a, on a pillow any day. I, I can't, I have no craft ability though. My daughters would have to do it. It skipped a generation, the craft gene. <laughs> well, you have you have your own creative gene. I have other crafts. It's yeah. all right. It's all right. <laughs> well, I just feel like the world is so lucky because not everyone can get to every production of your play, but you have shared so much of yourself. It's funny, your plays feel very much focused on, obviously, Sarah Rule brings Sarah Rule to everything she writes, but the autobiographical and the deeply personal is found in your poetry and your and your prose and 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 you know i i read the book of poems that you and your student max uh, uh letters that you and your student max had shared with each other and and his poems and your poems and and really smile is such um i mean talk about like revealing so much of yourself oh. in in a you know in a way that we really got to know so much of your journey with Bell's palsy. You've recently said that now because of the book, someone said to you, Hey, have you been tested for Lyme? Mm -hmm. And I know, so I guess I just want to ask, like, it is really hard to sit and write all day. And anytime we have pain or discomfort, it's just tough to do our job. So how are you feeling today? As I speak to you physically? That's so nice. I feel pretty good today. Um, and I've been, you know, finding different treatments for Lyme. I'm not, you know, out of the woods yet, but I'm feeling a little better. Um, and I do think in a funny way, my version of Lyme was a lot of fatigue and and Bell's palsy and some weird neurological things. Um, but I think when I lacked physical energy, writing became a life a lifeboat where I, ha I had plenty of mental energy. So even when I didn't feel like I could exercise or, you know, do a huge long expedition with my kids, I could, I could think and I could imagine and I could write. So I've been lucky that way. And, and I'm hoping I, um, I, I pick up some more physical energy in the, in the yeah. next decade. Yeah. Well, before I let you go to write the next Pulitzer Prize winning everything, um, <laughs> you or whatever award, it, 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 whatever <laughs> award fits the type of writing it is. Um, can you share a little known fact about yourself? Sure. Um, I think this is a little known fact. My middle name is Dart. So my name is Sarah Dart Rule. 
So if you get an email from me, it might have Dart in in the um, in the whatever in the address. My my grandma. I'm named after my grandma, who was Sally Dart, and my mom wanted to name me Dart, um, but my dad thought children would make fun of me, and just, they did anyway. But for different, <laughs> different exactly, you can't win. They'll find something. Yeah. But some of my um, my friends from childhood call me Dart occasionally. I love it. Well, Sarah Dart Rule, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Congratulations on Becky Nurse of Salem and everything else. Um, until next time. Thank you so much and give my love to your good husband. I will. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.